I'm going this evening to try to pull together some of the threads that we've explored over the last week and then to see where that might lead in terms of how we actually live in the world we live in. And I would like to go back to the, the text that we looked at at the first evening, the one that speaks of how people love their plays. They delight and revel in their plays. And it is hard for such people to see this ground, namely this conditions that, conditioned arising. And how this practice is in many ways a shift in our ground, a shift from being overly invested, perhaps, in our own sense of identity, in our own sense of security, in our own sense of well-being, which maybe we could summarize in the term... Uh, egoism, a rather excessive self-regard. And although theoretically we um, do not uh, or would not approve of such things, we would admire a person who is somehow selfless as opposed to selfish. And although we may feel ourselves to be moral and ethical beings concerned with the fate of the world and others. When we sit still and pay attention to what actually goes on in the mind, not the mind, but this mind, we see that that um, image we have of ourselves is often somewhat contradicted by the relentless self-centeredness that bubbles forth in each moment and this can be somewhat sobering but it is also I think the first step to considering that we might be able to be in this world from another place a place that we don't try to kind of grasp onto with every fibre of our body and mind and try to secure a static point in the midst of this turning world, as T.S. Eliot called it, but rather to take the turning world as our ground. And the Buddha called the turning world, this conditions that, conditioned arising. And we saw how that principle of a life premised on change, on process of vanishing, of evolving, translates into the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, which is quite explicitly uh, presented as a, a way of life, as a way of being in the world, not just in a detached spiritual sense but one that engages how we see things and think about things our ideas our values 
how we communicate, how we give embodiment through our actions, how we work, how we engage in a social network of colleagues, of friends, of societies, of other people. How that in turn becomes another ground, another moving ground on which we can begin to pay attention in a different way. And the Buddha using this term satipatan and again returning to another sense of ground, the ground of mindful awareness, the satipatana, ground. And how for the Buddha also, Satipatthana, this, this ground of mindful attention, is for him the way to Nibbana, to a certain inner release. He sometimes calls it the indestructible deliverance of mind, which again is so easily taken as a description of some very rarefied and advanced mystical state. And Buddhist traditions often describe such a state as one in which all trace of, of attachment or grasping or fear, that's just gone. There is just a liberated mind. Now as an ideal, I think that is a very um, wonderful thing to aspire to and perhaps there are moments in our own life when we have a real vital sense of that not just as an idea but as a reality that we can be in this world be totally present to this world but not be as it were pushed and pulled by its exigencies its demands and so forth there's a wonderful passage in the uh, writings of the 9th century Chan master Lin Chi, or Rinzai. He, he addresses his uh, students with the words, Blind fools, you spend this life uh, running through the world like a donkey on, uh, like a donkey slipping and faltering on an icy road. I think that's a wonderful image of how we might feel some of the time. We can't quite get a handle on things. We, we slip and slide and never really find a ground, never really manage to make any purchase on what it is that is calling out to us, what it is beneath our feet, both literally and, metaphys and, and metaphorically. So the, the Eightfold Path is, I feel, the goal of the practice. And this is the case, though, only if we think of the Four Truths within a secular context. That as long as we see these four ennobling truths within the frame of of classical Indian metaphysics in other words as a means whereby to cease having to go through the round of birth and death then 
the Eightfold Path becomes a way whereby to stop being born. And that is the final Nibbana, the final deliverance of mind that is traditionally seen as the goal of the path. But if we suspend or bracket the framework of classical Indian thought and we try to see what there is within these teachings that is not dependent on the views of ancient India but what is there within these ideas that speaks to our condition here and now that spoke to the condition of the early Chan Buddhists in China for example you see one of the things that um, distinguishes the Buddhist tradition from all the other Indian traditions is that it managed to flourish outside of India. In other words, there's something in it that transcends the limitations of Indian culture. And what I'm interested in is trying to uh, get down to what those core insights and values and practices are. I feel very strongly that... um, the, the clue lies in this very first uh, discourse of the Buddha. And as I've been exploring it here, it's very much about um, a process, and not a process in some grand scheme of many lifetimes, but rather a process that we are called upon to engage with in each moment of our lives here and now. And it begins with this sense of fully knowing dukkha or suffering. Again, suffering is in some senses, I think, an inadequate word. It's more than that. When the Buddha describes uh, in his description of dukkha, of the first ennobling truth, he says, in short, Dukkha is the five um, aggregates, which is shorthand in Buddhist jargon for the entirety of the phenomenal world. Materiality, the physical, um, the emotional, the feeling, perception, activity, volition, consciousness, all of which operate interdependently, one with the other that that in a sense is what is needed to be fully known and the ways in which we can do that are, are multiple each Buddhist tradition I feel has refined specific exercises and practices and, f- practices and philosophies that um, support that fully knowing be it the practice of mindful awareness be it the practice of of this deep questioning in Zen, be it the practice of loving kindness, all of the practices we do are facets of knowing, fully knowing, the state we are in, the condition of our lives, and not just our own lives, because clearly we will move out of ourselves in this process into 
an encounter with others. This fully knowing then quite organically and naturally leads to the falling away of certain clingings and attachments and habits and preoccupations to a more openness, to a greater openness of mind, a greater sensibility, a greater sensitivity to what's taking place. And that falling away opens up to moments in which there is a stilling, a stopping, and the very real possibility of responding to life in another way. And again, I don't want to make this too elevated and to put it up on a pedestal. In Zen particularly, there's, there's a strong critique of the notion that this is all some kind of rather long-winded, gradual process. That in fact the moments of stopping, the moments of letting go, the moments of fully knowing can break into our life at any moment that we are not creatures who are bound by mechanical sequences of causes and effects. There's something rather multidimensional to our experience. One moment we can be perhaps caught up in some deep anxiety and feel sort of knotted up in ourselves. The next moment a friend comes through the door in a state of distress and we're with them with compassion, with concern, with openness, and all of that anxiety has vanished. And we find ourselves saying things and doing things that surprise us, that seem to come from some other ground than our habitual place. And that's both surprising and also strangely reassuring that we have a capacity we have a resource within us whether we practice religion or Buddhism or philosophy that's almost beside the point we're talking about this strange and wonderful thing called the human condition and such moments of great wisdom and great compassion can come through in our lives and then in the next moment they're gone and we're back in the turmoil of uncertainty, of confusion, of self-doubt. So there's a sense about this path that it's not just some gradual process of, of development and getting better at doing it but also in this openness that comes with the, the dropping away, the letting go, we become um, transparent to all manner of other possibilities. The key moment is called entering the stream, which we spoke about earlier. But one of the other factors that I didn't mention then one of the other characteristics of one who has entered the path is that that person is no longer dependent upon the opinions of others. This is a, a definition that occurs in a number of places in the text. And what it points to is 
paradoxically perhaps, that this falling away of self-centeredness, of ego, is actually the first step in a process of individuation, of becoming what we can be. It's not as though we become a kind of, um, a kind of blank, a tabula rasa. That's really rather absurd. And when you think, say, of someone like uh, the present Dalai Lama, here's a man who goes around the world talking endlessly about no self and emptiness. And yet he's one of the most um, highly um, differentiated personalities that we know. And that's not a contradiction. That, I feel, is actually very much of the essence. What we're, in a sense, letting go of is precisely that grip or that uh, clinging onto me that prevents us from flowering, from unfolding, from going, uh, transcending our limits and reaching into another ground altogether. So there is a strong current, although I think it's a rather buried one, that of uh, a process of individuation. You find this um, in other passages where the Buddha speaks of the nature of the person. There's a famous text, it's in the Suttanipata, where he says, a person is not born a Brahmin, a person is not born um, as a nobleman, but a person becomes a Brahmin by what they do. In other words, he goes on, a Brahmin is a Brahmin because of what he does. A warrior is a warrior because of what he does. A king is a king because of what he does. A carpenter, a farmer, a fisherman are what they are because of what they do not because of what they intrinsically are. Now, at one level, that is a social critique of the Indian caste system. But it's also a critique of that notion we have of being this one person who is what they are in some essential way. That we do not have a fixed identity or role, it is, the, it is nonetheless something that through our actions we can create. Uh, some modern philosophers uh, describe this as a performative conception of self, i.e. who you are is what you do. There is no essential me, but you create yourself through your deeds, through your acts. Perhaps one of the uh, most striking examples of this um, is found in a verse in the Dhammapada, I think it's verse 80, um, that says, just as a farmer irrigates his fields, just as a arrowsmith manufactures an arrow, just as a carpenter fashions a piece of wood, so the wise man tames 
the self. Now the word the self here is the very same word as in not-self. It's atanam, accusative singular. That's the key bit. Although all translations from English don't translate it in an accusative form. They make it a reflexive function of the verb. The wise person trains himself. Whereas in the original text, the self is in an equivalent grammatical relationship to the subject, as is the field to the farmer, the arrow to the arrowsmith, the block of wood to the carpenter. In other words, what we are, you and me, that is the raw material of our practice. It is by irrigating, and again, I don't think these metaphors are chosen accidentally or just out of the top of his head that who we are what we are is something that can be irrigated what does it mean to irrigate it means to open up channels pathways within the uh, the very fabric of ourselves in which water can flow and water flowing in such channels enriches that earth such that plants and trees and other things can flourish. It's very much a metaphor of coming alive instead of a parched soil, which is sometimes how we feel, that our lives are kind of dried out. There's no real room for, uh, for growth, for fertility. Here we have a metaphor of watering, of carving channels in order that we can grow. Or the idea of an arrowsmith manufacturing an arrow, putting together different elements, wood, metal, feathers. And in a similar way, we, as it were, discover what capacities we have within ourselves and reorganize them in such a way that we become skilled, say, I mean, in this context, say meditation. But it could also be in some creative art. It could be in a skill that enables us to live a livelihood that's fulfilling and enriching. We have potentials that we can reconfigure in such a way that our life becomes more, and again, the image of an arrow, more direct, more penetrating, flying as it were, unimpeded through the air. The image of a carpenter and a piece of wood, something that is an uncarved block of timber, or stone perhaps, if we think of it as sculpture, something that can be fashioned into, into a beautiful bowl or an image or whatever it might be. All of these metaphors are metaphors of process. They're metaphors of, of transformation. They're metaphors of becoming. They're metaphors of emergence. And of course they all go back, theoretically, to the idea of this conditions that, conditioned arising. We are conditioned arisings. In, in the classical languages, patitya samupada does not just refer to 
a kind of law or a principle or a process, every single thing is a paticca samupada, a conditioned arising. It's tricky. And this whole process is also one in which um, we're being called upon to exercise self-reliance, to become, as the as I already cited, independent of the opinions of others. Once we've um, seen for ourselves the third truth, then we somehow act not from belief any longer or hope, but we act from our own deep intuitive conviction that that this life is very possible. It's something that can be done. When the Buddha was dying, um, this would have been probably a month or two before he actually died. Uh, It's at the very end of his final reigns retreat. And it's a very famous passage, and I'll read it out. Um, I'll just read out this one section. He says, Therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves being your own refuge with no one else as your refuge with the Dhamma as an island with the Dhamma as your refuge and how does a monk live as an island unto himself with no other refuge here Ananda a monk abides contemplating the body as body clearly aware mindful And likewise with regard to feelings, mind and phenomena. That is how a monk lives as an island unto himself. Some of you might be familiar with a translation that says lamp. Be a lamp unto yourself. The problem is that the Pali word deeper means both lamp and island. But I think it can be both. I don't think we have to choose one over the other. But the point of this is to show that when the chips are down, and here with the Buddha approaching death and the story, if we were to go into it, shows that the chips are seriously down. Not only is he dying, he's in flight and exile and his world is breaking up around him. He doesn't say, take refuge in the Sangha. He certainly doesn't say, take refuge in the Buddha. He says, take refuge in the Dhamma. In other words, what you have integrated, what you have internalized of this practice, of these values, in your own experience, that's, in the end, the only thing you can really rely upon. Everything else is temporary. It may not be around when you need it most. This is very much... Uh, an injunction uh, to self-reliance. It's also worth bearing in mind that um, shortly before he died, in the same text, um, he says to Ananda, he says, do not worry, Ananda, that when I am gone, you will have no teacher. When I am gone, the Dhamma will be your teacher. 
He did not appoint a successor. He deliberately and repeatedly refused to put another monk in charge. He had a vision of a community, a sangha, which governed itself by consensus, and if consensus failed, then there was a system of majority voting. It was a democratic system. And the, um, uh, the standards or the values or the norms by which that society, that community regulated itself, resolved its conflicts, was according to the principles of the Dhamma. Dhamma, remember, means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is law. In other words, um, a series of guidelines, principles, ethical injunctions, practices, and so on, which are entirely impersonal. They've got nothing to do with the personality of Siddhartha Gautama. That he envisioned a society, a community, that was self-regulating, was autonomous, and was not under the autocratic control or um, responsibility of some enlightened monk. Now what's quite revealing in um, a number of texts that describe what happens between the Buddha's death and the first council about six months later is that there was a power struggle and that the um, the community was caught between those who sought to be true to the Buddha's vision and these were mainly people like Ananda who was a cousin of the Buddha a a kshatriya which means a, a member of the ruling class not a priest and those monks who were formerly Brahmins and the Brahmins won the priestly faction within the community um, prevailed. And one monk in particular, Mahakasapa, Mahakasyapa in Sanskrit, effectively became the Pope. Um, in, in fact, the tradition calls Mahakasyapa the father of the Sangha, the Papa, the Pope, the Patriarch, the Boss, <laughs> the couple. now this was not what the Buddha had in mind quite explicitly and yet so rapidly did human habit and um, and tradition perhaps override his emphasis on the Dhamma and they had a strong man instead and in a way the history of Buddhism has been a constant uh, struggle between uh, these two poles. Another um, passage, which again is is almost a stock uh, paragraph that runs through uh, the whole of the canon, is this passage where the Buddha says to the monks who have undergone their initial training, usually a period of some years, maybe four or five years, and then he says, Go forth into the world uh, for the welfare of the many, for the benefit of the many, out of compassion for the many, and let no two of you follow the same path. I think it's that last sentence that is 
is the interesting one. He envisioned uh, not, he did not envisage um, a Cenobitic monastic community. In other words, uh, communities of, of monks and nuns who would live in monastic seclusion, which is, of course, what happened in the end. But rather, he saw his uh, community as uh, individuals who, once they had a grounding, once they'd entered this path, entered this stream, would go forth into the world by themselves. Again, it's a kind of um, uh, empowerment of the individual, which again is endlessly confused by this idea of not-self. We have to, I think, recognize, as one author, Stephen Collins, put it, that this is a philosophy of the selfless person with equal weight on both words. To be selfless doesn't mean to lose or to abandon your sense of being the unique individual person that you are. In fact, paradoxically, the loss of ego allows for, as I've already said, the emergence of yourself as a fully individuated person. Now, a lot of this um, sounds curiously secular. In fact, it's quite a striking break with um, much that we receive from, Bud from Buddhism as a religion which so often requires or encourages a kind of devotion towards those who are more enlightened than us. And in many Buddhist societies, um, Buddhism reflected in its social organization the political structures of the society around it. So you have, um, in feudal situations, like Japan, like Tibet, you have a feudal structure within the uh, religious organization of Buddhism. Whereas if you go to China or Korea, you find that the monasteries are organized along a Confucianist model, not a feudal model. In other words, um, Confucianism was a, a view of the world that saw the aim of human life to um, to function as a harmonious social whole, each member and part of that society having responsibilities and duties to the other as elements of the society. And by each person somehow according to their um, uh, particular responsibilities, that brought about social harmony. There's no idea in Confucian society of a of a kind of autocratic leader. It's about a balancing act of different social forces. And so a Zen monastery in Korea is a very different social organism to, say, um, a Zen monastery in Japan or in Tibet. And so we can see how Buddhism has this extraordinary um, adaptability. It has a capacity somehow to continually reinvent itself. 
Buddhism is not, therefore, a finished product. It's not something that has been established for all time, although many Buddhist traditions like to present it as such. The teachings we have are those the Buddha gave, and they're exactly the same, and this is the pure Dhamma, unchanged. It's somehow evaded, you know, two and a half thousand years of history, culture, social evolution, warfare, politics, and so forth and so on. The, the Dhamma, the teaching, Buddhism, the social organizations, the religious organizations, these too are conditioned arisings. They are another way of seeing how when this is, that comes to be. One of the things I feel that might make a difference in uh, the modern world is that we, for the first time, look upon uh, Buddhism as an historical and as a cultural process. When we, I mean, this is so obvious to us, it seems strange that others would not see it in the same way, but if we were to be asked, you know, why is Buddhism in Tibet so different from Buddhism in Japan? I suspect we would answer, well, because Tibet is a very different kind of cultural, political, economic situation as compared to Japan. That's why it's different. Whereas traditional Buddhists of Japan and Tibet would be more prone to say, well, it's different in Japan because they don't actually have the true Dharma. (laughs) They probably wouldn't be quite as blunt as that, but in a way that's what it would come down to. And so curiously, we have, I think, to start to consider the Dhamma, or Buddhism, let's say, or the Buddhist tradition, as likewise something that is continuously arising and passing away. It's configuring itself in relation to the new set of needs and uh, conditions in which it finds itself. And it seems surprising that for a tradition that takes as its axiomatic Uh, foundation, the notion of contingent arising, that they wouldn't notice that. That instead we try to preserve or they try to preserve things as they apparently have always been. There's very little room for change. Change is seen as a threat. And so you get this emphasis on preserving the Dhamma. Keeping the pure Dhamma. But of course the only things that we preserve, if we look into that word, are things that are already dead, like plums and apples and figs. A preserve is some way of trying to uh, keep them from not changing. And that, it would seem, is somewhat antithetical to a philosophy that is premised on the principle of change. If we go back to that passage, go forth into the world for the welfare of the many out of compassion for the many, we touch upon an element that Martin has been bringing in today and last night, and that is the, um, the responsibility that we begin to become aware of as we fully come to know suffering 
And for me, the, 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 these ideas of, of love and compassion um, are not somehow um, ethical obligations, that we, things that we should do. I think there's almost something um, contradictory in saying you should be compassionate. Compassion, again, like love, is when it is genuine, it is spontaneous. It's something that emerges as a natural response to a situation of suffering. And it's founded, both love and compassion, are founded on our capacity to empathize. Empathy is not explicitly mentioned in Buddhist teaching although there are many metaphors that I think point to it quite um, and many stories that point to it quite directly but empathy is the capacity we have to feel ourselves in the skin of the other being it's easy to empathize with those um, who are close to us if our child or if our parent is in pain it's almost as though we feel that pain ourselves we can't bear it and we spontaneously without having to think without having to reflect reach out to that person as best we can to respond to and seek to assuage the pain that they experience but what we find is that to the extent to which we are invested in me and mine, that defines the limits of our empathetic range. In other words, I can feel empathy to those beings I think of as mine, like my wife, my children, my friends, my fellow supporters of the local football club, or my fellow British, and it gets a bit here we can see it's getting into some rather treacherous waters. My fellow Buddhists feel very empathetic towards them. But people of another religious or ethnic group or skin colour, I might find empathy comes less spontaneously. And I think we have to be honest here. It's all very well to say, may all beings be happy. But what actually happens when, for example... I'm walking through the streets of London and I trip over some guy who's lying on the pavement drunk and soaked in their own piss. How do I feel then? Do I feel empathy? Or do I feel a kind of revulsion? And I think with mindfulness and awareness we're not trying to impose what should be the case. But we're trying to be honest with ourselves and notice how in fact we do respond and then to ask well why do I feel that way why do I respond with that kind of innate fear or resistance or prejudice and I think it very often comes back to the notion of my sense of who I am and what is within the sphere of mine my people, my friends, my social class, my fellow religionists, etc. 
It's all premised on my. And that limits, of course, the mo- even the Nazis could be empathetic and compassionate to the other Nazis. Empathy is universal. But as human beings, we seem to uh, choose or we are conditioned to limit the reach of our empathetic responsiveness. And so we find um, throughout the Buddhist tradition this notion of sabasatta, all sentient beings, all sentient beings, that in a way as the, um, as, uh, as the constriction of ego begins to fall away, our capacity to empathize opens up and extends. And this may not necessarily be something that brings us bliss and joy. In some ways, we become more sensitized to the pain of the world. Um, There's a very beautiful text, some of you know perhaps, by Shantideva, It's an 8th century uh, Indian Mahayana writer who says, how can the Buddhas who identify with all beings possibly experience joy when they are experiencing as themselves the entire suffering world? It's a very interesting idea that um, our self-centeredness, our closing down, is a kind of anesthetic. It somehow numbs us to the extent of suffering in the world. It makes it manageable. We can cope with it. There is some, and there's something, I mean, in, um, in some of the Mahayana texts, they also, when they talk of emptiness, They don't talk of emptiness as something which is to be understood or known, which is the usual way it's presented. But they say emptiness is something that we learn, we have to learn to bear. We have to be able to stand it, bear it, somehow um, tolerate it. Kshanti is the word. Patience, tolerance. And this, I think, also points to another by it and yet at the same time not to um, diminish it but to be to allow ourselves to feel it and that requires again a kind of inner uh, stability an inner integrity a focus a value system such that we can through these uh, meditations increase and expand our sphere of um, compassion. And empathy then allows the genuine wish for others not to suffer, which is the technical definition of compassion, and wish them to be happy, which is metta, or loving kindness. But neither of those are possible in a real sense unless we are empathetically identified with the other. Now, there's also, though, the risk that if our 
practice of love and compassion are primarily things we do in meditation, that they may not translate into acts of love and compassion. And one could say, I would say, that love and compassion are not essentially states of mind, but they are actions. Uh, We can feel tremendous love for all sentient beings, but does that really make a difference in how we relate to the person next door who is a real pain? There's a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy says, I love humanity. It's other people I can't stand. And that's so true. Uh, it's so true, you know. You do your bodhicitta meditations. And then you get really pissed off with the person uh, in, the, in the post office or whatever. There's something not quite fitting here. And for this reason, I feel that, that, that love, compassion, these, these very important and very beautiful ideas need to be instantiated in the real world. And there's a very good, a very beautiful um, example of this. Again, it's tucked away in the Pali Canon. Um, it's not widely um, talked about. But it's a story that concerns the Buddha and Ananda, his attendant, who go one day into a monastery or a community of monks. They didn't really have monasteries in those days. Into a community of monks. And they come across a monk who's lying on the ground in his cell, in his own urine and excrement. And the Buddha says to him, why are your fellow monks not taking care of you? And the the sick monk says, Well, they say that because I'm not doing anything for them, why should they do anything for me? And so the Buddha and Ananda clean the monk of all his waste. They lie him on a bed. They give him water and food. And then they go to the other monks and they say, well, why did you not care for this man? And the other monks say, well, he wasn't doing anything for us, so why should we do anything for him? And then the Buddha says, those of you who tend to me should tend to the sick. Those of you who tend to me, the Buddha, should tend to the sick. Now that is for me one of these uh, passages that is quite obscure and yet it is very much um, I feel um, uh, crucial to getting a glimpse of the, the concreteness of the Buddha's concerns what does it mean those who tend to me should tend to the sick I don't think it means that those who are interested in me Siddhartha Gautama your teacher should also care for sick people But those who are concerned with what I represent or stand for, awakening, compassion, wisdom, should care for the sick. It's strikingly reminiscent of that famous 
passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus says to um, his followers that um, uh, I can't remember it word for word but basically it has to do with um, whenever you met someone in a prison whenever you cared for someone who was sick you were caring for me it's exactly the same idea and what I find very uh, powerful about that passage um, uh, in the in the Vinaya, in the Buddhist tradition, in the early Buddhist texts, is that it brings love and compassion into the specificity of our day-to-day life. It's not some may all beings be happy. This is the Buddha getting literally getting his hands dirty. And what's curious is that in the Mahayana traditions, which do take this idea of compassion and develop it into a very grandiose aspiration to attain awakening and enlightenment for the sake of all beings over infinite time and space, which I think is a a beautiful image. At the same time, they represent the Buddha as someone who would never get his hands dirty. The Buddha becomes deified, becomes this rather impossibly perfect godlike figure who would never in a Mahayana text be shown as someone who would sweep up the shit and the piss of a sick monk so there's a, there's a problem there I think it's a problem of idealization of a kind of um, grandiosity of, um, of emotion and yet at the same time a loss of specificity it always troubled me actually for many years why there was not a passage in uh, the Buddhist tradition that had that same power of specificity as Matthew 25 which I've always found to be one of the great central Christian teachings and yet then I found it tucked away of course in some obscure text but there it was and um, In this sense, I think we get another glimpse, in a way, of a kind of Buddhism that never actually happened. A Buddhism that gave birth, let's say, to a social theory. The Buddha was a constant and vociferous critic of the caste system in Indian society. he had a vision in which that would be entirely abolished and yet we know by going to India today that it didn't happen one of the other germs I feel of, an, of the Buddha's social vision is found in a metaphor he uses on a number of occasions um, of the ocean and he says that just as the great rivers the Ganges, the Yamuna and so on pour, uh, empty out into the great ocean and lose their difference uh, they all merge into one so in my Dhammavinya, in my teaching, in my community in my Sangha the castes of men the priests, the warriors the merchants, the workers enter into my community and, those, and their differences are dissolved 
like the differences between the great rivers. He has a very explicit vision of a classless society. One in which also, and this goes um, in, in the next step of this metaphor, the Buddha says, just as the great ocean is permeated by the taste of salt, so is my teaching permeated by the taste of freedom. Now that's usually taken in a spiritual sense, sort of in you know liberation of mind. But if we put that within the larger metaphor of the ocean, which is a place in which all social caste distinction has been dissolved, we can also see it as a social vision. In other words, a society in which each person is free to become what they can be. And then we go back to those passages I cited, a Brahmin is a Brahmin because of what he does, etc. In other words, he envisioned a society in which these, uh, these uh, distinctions of class were abolished and each individual was empowered to become, through their acts, what they could potentially be. But of course that never happened. It did not work that way. I feel the Buddha was not idealistic. He did not expect to see that in his lifetime. And he established his Sangha, his community, really as a kind of prototype, a kind of microcosm of what the wider society could be. But as history shows us, the, um, the social revolution that the Buddha would, was pointing to did not um, take place. And instead, Buddhism became an, another Indian religion. And that gave birth to some marvelous things. But the emphasis increasingly became that of of, of, of spiritual insight, of um, understanding, of meditation, and all of the things that we so strongly associate with Buddhism. Of course, Buddhism functioned throughout its history as a social organization. And in doing such, it, fun it, it, it had a very important social function. It had the function of education, it had the function very often of... Um, medical knowledge it had the function of taking care of uh, orphans of people who were uh, abandoned but it never translated that those principles into a wider political or social vision and I think I'd better stop there um, I hope that these ideas are somehow coherent um, but as you may be aware, um, these are also my own ongoing reflections. Um, and at some point, they'll, be, they'll appear in some book or other, I guess. Um, just one or two practical things. Um, silence will end tomorrow at breakfast. And... Um, 
we would very much appreciate it if that is respected until then. Also, um, please make sure to be here at quarter past seven uh, tomorrow morning when the managers, or one of the managers, uh, will give a closing talk to do with all manner of practical details. And also to be aware that at the same time, the manager will put up a form which will um, enable you to find out how to get a lift to there and here and everywhere. And it's much more efficient than lots of little notes. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.